Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with pianist Stephen Huff, And in this month's conversation, you'll hear Stephen answer the question, is memorizing music really all that important? Share some tips and insights on fingerings and toss in various deep thoughts and insights of all kinds throughout. I was reading the recent Q&A you did with the Juilliard Journal and, and all of it was, of course, you know, the little nuggets were interesting. But the one part that really struck me was right at the end where you mentioned that the question you always get asked is, of course, how do you remember all that music? Uh, but the, the question that you wish you'd get asked more often was a different one. Specifically, is memorizing music all that important? And I know this is something you've thought about and you've written about a fair bit over the years, but I do think that we tend to focus an awful lot on the how question and, and not so much on the why question. So that's where I'd love to start, really. Um, so if, if a student or a fellow musician came up to you one day and asked, is memorizing music all that important? What would you What would you say to them? Well, I'd say yes and no, <laughs> because I think it's a very complicated question. I think there's no no doubt for me that it's 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 a skill that you need to learn as when you're young, along with learning your instrument. I don't think just reading from the score until you can sort of play it and then, ah, that piece is done, what's the next one, is quite what we're talking about when we're talking about learning music to a deep way. Just as as in learning a a role for a play, you know, you need to get absolutely inside the character. And I think for us as musicians, part of that process is memorizing. It's being able to put the music aside and inhabit that music I think the question comes is, is memorizing in a concert situation always what we need to keep doing? I think we need to learn the skill, but do we need to display that skill every time we play in concert? And I think in recent years, um, it's become less required to do that. I think it started probably in the post-war period with very complicated contemporary scores, Boulez sonatas, Schockhausen Klavierstücke for pianists anyway, do we really need to, to memorize 30 pages of the most absolutely complex, atonal, all over the keyboard, thousand different time signatures? I mean, what is that really proving? Is it proving that you're a great musician? Is it giving something to the performance? 
And I think almost all of us would say, well, no. You know, some people have that skill, just as some people are left-handed and some people are right-handed. I don't think there's any qualitative difference between the two. And I think that began to break down this idea that we always have to play from memory, because for pianists, really, for 100 years from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, it was simply impossible to have a career if you played from the score. You had to play from memory. It was absolutely a requirement, and pretty much everything you did. And so now it's breaking down a bit. Some artists actually do play entirely from iPads, which is, of course, has, has changed the question again, because visually an iPad is not so much a distraction. If, if you're in an audience at a concert hall, you don't even see the iPad. So that's changed. Uh, we, you don't have to have a page turner up there anymore. But I was thinking about this question, in fact, even since you mentioned uh, us talking about this, and I think there are certain pieces, certain repertoire where playing from memory is still part of the, the theatrical experience of hearing the performance. I think if you're playing the Berg, and to, to change it to your own uh, area, the Berg Violin Concerto, I think from a score is a very different thing than the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto from a score. Not only because so many people play it and learn it and everything else, but I think there's just something visually about the theatre of it. And and concerts, to me, are theatre, uh, in, in which I, I think it's more important to, to play from from memory than it is from the score. I was watching just the other night Horowitz playing from Carnegie Hall, the, men, uh, the um, F-sharp minor polonaise. It's a wonderful performance. I think it's from the mid-1960s. And I was imagining him with an iPad inside the piano, whether it would be a different experience. And I have to admit it would. Now, whether this is, is a bad thing, whether we're entering here into the whole business of what it is to be a star, to be famous, uh, to be thought better than other people and all of the hierarchical stuff that maybe we're also beginning to unpack and say, is this what being a musician is about? But nevertheless, in 1968, with Horowitz on that stage at Carnegie Hall, I can't imagine him either with a score and page turner or with an iPad. So the answer, it's a very long answer to your question, yes and no. Right. Well, one of the things that I was really curious about too is in your recent book, you went into some interesting details about how different types of recording sessions feel different and are approached differently. You know, if you're doing a quote live recording or if you're doing one um, with an orchestra or with a smaller ensemble, like it, it changes based on the different parameters and, and so forth. And so I wondered if you could not speak to that per se, but kind of go into the kind of nuances and differences of your own internal experience of playing from memory versus playing from not. Because my understanding, if I'm remembering correctly, is that when it's a composition of your own, you do use the music. But if it's not one of your own, then you don't. And so I wondered if there were differences that the audience may not necessarily perceive, but that you internally, your experience of performing the piece or your experience in the performance itself are different when you have the music versus not. I think that's definitely true. I think playing my own music from the score has an additional layer, though, because it enables me to separate myself, the performer, from myself, the composer. I think if I come out from the wings to play a sonata of mine and I play from memory, somehow I don't want it to seem like I'm just making it up as I go along, you know, because it is mine. And in a sense, at one point, I did make it up. But now it has its existence apart from me. And I think having the score there helps me and maybe the audience too to make that distinction. 
But the last piece, I think, contemporary piece that I memorized was probably the John Corleano Etude Fantasy quite a while ago. And I have to say that, I mean, I memorized it and I played it for a whole season. I don't think I ever felt 100% comfortable playing it from memory. I always thought, as well as wanting to play the piece and, 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 and convey the spirit of the piece, at the back of my mind was always, oh dear, now is this passage going to go wrong because of forgetting, not because of not playing the notes. And so when I, the next big contemporary piece I, I learned was George Santakis' Ghost Variations, um, which is 69 pages. Uh, it's a long piece. And I never even tried with that to memorize it. I thought, no, this is a, 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 a sort of crossroads for me. And I'm going to go down that path, which is playing unashamedly from a great big paper score with a page turner and the whole thing. And I must say, I never felt that it detracted from what the piece had to say. And then other pieces that I played after that, you know, I, I also played um, from the score. But if I'm playing a piece like the Liszt Sonata, all the Chopin works, uh, even Beethoven, actually, although Beethoven would almost certainly have played from the score at his time, I somehow find it gives me a greater sense of freedom. I mean, that might be a contradiction because you'd think that having the score there would give you more freedom because it would take one worry away from you. But there's something about the Liszt Sonata, you know, 30 minutes. It's such a theatrical piece. Liszt is the guy who started us all on this journey of playing from memory anyway. I can't imagine having the same feeling of drama if I had the score in front of me as I do, because I know the piece very well. And I, when I walk out to play that piece, and I, you know, it begins in silence. The first note, if you like, is a rest. And there's something about that whole world. It's such a, a vast piece in spirit more than in, in anything else. I think it would, for me, it would take away something from the piece to play that from the score. I was just curious while you were thinking about some of these specific pieces, do you have a sense of there being a different internal mental experience when you're playing something? You talked about feeling more freedom in a way when you're playing from memory. Does it mean that you're thinking about different things perhaps when you don't have the score? Not worrying about it, of course, but like, do you, do you have other music related thoughts perhaps that you have the bandwidth to engage in when the music isn't there perhaps than when it is? I do find that really. I, I find that it's like I have a blank canvas when I come out and it's complete. I can take it any direction I want. You know, I have a great box of paints and I have an idea of what I want to do, but I, I can go in all sorts of directions. If I'm playing from the score, it's more like I have the shapes of, on the canvas traced out in very light pencil and I'm then going to work with them. But I just don't feel that same sense of abandon, of recklessness almost, if you like that I do when I don't have the score. It's, it's somehow holding me in, or maybe it's like a brace on a leg after an injury. I, I'm still walking perfectly well, but the brace is the safety net, if you like, that's holding that leg in shape. And I, I feel like leaving the score in the wings is like casting that brace off. And yeah, maybe I'm going to fall down, but somehow it's worth that risk. Uh, it doesn't always feel a good sense of risk, of course. And I think when you're playing with orchestra, that's another additional worry because a big memory lapse in a solo recital actually doesn't really matter very much. I can stop, I can go back, I can make up, I can do all sorts of things. If the orchestra is playing along with me, all of us have to stop. And then it really registers with the audience in a major way. And it's only happened to me once right at the beginning of my career in the 80s. And I had a, a big 
I, I took a completely wrong turn in the Mozart concerto and I ended up in the recap. So the music was the same, but the keys were all wrong and they were still playing the exposition. And, and it sounded just awful, of course. So I stopped. No, the orchestra stopped and I carried on sort of playing and I got to the cadenza, which was near where I was and finished the cadenza. And then they knew when to come in and then it was sort of okay. But that I can still make myself, my heart beat faster when I think about that moment. It was just so awful. But somehow it's, it's, it boils down to, and this is your area now, isn't it? Of, of the mental stuff, of the pride involved, of not wanting to seem silly in front of your, your peers and colleagues and audience of, of being afraid of failure, of all that area that we work with as musicians from being kids. And, and you know, the idea of winning a competition or not, of playing wrong notes or not, all that stuff, that baggage, which comes, I think, to its sharpest point in this area of memory. And certainly colleagues that I've spoken to, I think this is the one thing, in fact, I'm not even going to say who it is, but I'm, I'm seeing a, a colleague tonight, a, f- a famous musician. We're, we're going to meet in someone's garden, so we're very safe distance from each other. But he told me once he's only ever nervous when he's playing from memory. And I thought that was interesting. And it's made me think of a lot of artists who don't play as much as they might want to or don't play as much repertoire as they might want. A lot of it has to do with this, I think, especially as you get older. I think once you get into your 30s, the memory is not as secure. Uh, That's just how human beings are. And certainly learning new things as you get into your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, it, it, the, the brain just can't take in as much new um, material. And you hope that you compensate in other ways by more profound use of, of the material. Maybe it's a bit like learning a language. You know, you, you learn a language very, very quickly when you're, you know, a kid. And then gradually as you get into teens and later teens and early 20s, the language skills change. And it's said, I think, that very few people can learn a language without having an accent once they get past a certain point, however brilliantly they learn it and how the vocabulary can be better than any native speaker, somehow the brain just isn't able to make that transition. And I think the same is very true in learning new pieces. But I'd say that I think there is a compensation because I think some people who learn a foreign language later in life actually do. And one thinks of someone like Nabokov is that example that springs to mind who who know that learned language better than than most people who who spoke it from birth and and maybe have interesting nuances. Joseph Conrad is another example. Interesting nuances and and and, and depths and and quirky ways of looking at ideas and words which the, which natives don't have. I wonder if you could speak to, and there may not be much of a difference, but I think you had mentioned the the Tantakis piece uh, being something that from day one you approached knowing that it would be something that you would not play from memory. And do you feel like there's a difference in how you approach the learning process when you know it's not going to have to be played from memory or, or is it kind of the same perhaps? That's a very interesting question. I, I think it's, if you know the safety net is never going to be taken away Perhaps, yeah, you're, you do walk across that tightrope a little differently than, than when you think, well, one day, you know, I may fall off this and I won't be alive anymore. It'll be the end. You know, that's not the case when you're playing with music. I think it also calls into question just contemporary music generally and, and how much it requires interpretation and how much you're required simply to play what's on the page. And I think this, of course, depends on the composer. Some composers, 
even say in, in a footnote, you know, do not interpret this piece. I have written exactly what I want to hear, and your job is to reproduce that as closely as you can. And, and the composer might write metronome marks and every single thing put out absolutely. And then there are other composers who actually do feel that their music will sound different with every different interpreter. And that maybe is also a little bit of a clue. If, if our job as interpreters and, or as performers is just to play what's on the page, then I think having the score there is pretty essential. If it's the score is was our guidebook, um, but we no longer need it, then maybe we can toss the guidebook aside. Uh, you know, it's like any machine. I mean, the computers we're speaking on now came with manuals of instruction, but you know, we don't have them in front of us the whole time. We've we've learned what to do, and and we we use them in different ways, and and sometimes they break down. But still, I think that sense of freedom is very important in, in how we use those machines. So there's maybe some correlation with, with learning music as well. Yeah. It sounds like it depends, as you said earlier on the piece in terms of whether the, cause it sounds from your description that there's quite a bit of spontaneity, obviously in performance, but even in the recording sessions that you described, I was surprised at how, I don't know that you ever use the word improvisational, but, but it seemed like a much more, creative and spontaneous and improvisational process of getting to that final uh, released version than I might have imagined. Yeah, well, I think it's a learning process. You know, it's obviously, we're hoping that we're always learning and always changing. And every time, you know, I play a piece one, night by night, it's something new is happening unless it becomes stale and, and so on. But I find that whole process is truncated in a recording session so that actually the learning is happening as you're listening back to a playback. So you do something that you've always believed in, you listen to the uh, on the headphones and you think, well, actually, I'm not sure that works. Let me try it a different way. And then that gives you a new idea or you hear a different voice perhaps that you never quite realized before. And so that takes you in a, in a different direction. I was, th these Brahms sonatas um, over the weekend with Michael. Michael, I think he recorded, this is now his third recording of the, of the sonatas. And the first one was, you know, way back in the eighties. And, um, but you know, he was also discovering new things as we were talking and as we were listening back. And that's what makes it very exciting. And I think in, in the, in the book, I, I speak about Kubrick and, and seeing that documentary about him filming the shining. And I also thought with a film that it would, you know, the script was there and, and everything was there, but to see Kubrick actually changing things literally as the cameras were moving around and whole scripts being every morning, people getting a new script. That's, I had never thought about that. And that also encouraged me in a way, um, thinking in the studio. I think this is also how Gould worked from what we can tell. And one of the reasons why he gave up concerts to, to, to go to recordings is he, he found recording a, a more creative process than he did playing in public, but I think with Gould, of course, he's no longer alive to correct me, but I think one of the reasons he stopped playing in public in his early 30s or whenever the exact time was, was exactly what we're talking about. I think he started to get scared of forgetting. And this is someone, of course, who played complicated contrapuntal music, obviously Bach, but also Hindemith and a lot of music with a lot of voices and a lot of places you could go wrong. And I'm pretty sure that that's one of the reasons, maybe the main reason why he said, oh, I don't want to play concerts anymore. He made this whole philosophical thing about audiences being a distraction and the concert being a thing of the past and so on and so on. And recording is the way of the future. Uh, I think a lot of it was an excuse for the fact that he actually got scared. And why not? You know, it comes to all of us. 
Yeah, it would seem to be an unfortunate side effect of this cultural pressure to play from memory that a we wouldn't like you said in uh, in your book get the breadth of repertoire performed nearly as often as we otherwise could and and even there to be a limit on the number of people who would feel comfortable playing a certain set of repertoire uh, without the music yeah so that does seem like it would be a detriment to the musical options that as an audience we have uh, to hear from overall this might be kind of a, a tangent, but it seemed to me that you brought up fingerings multiple times, both in the book and in, in other things you'd written. And it just might just be my own sort of projection of it, because I thought fingerings were always kind of fun and not just a challenge, but just fun to play around with. And I think you had quoted somebody who had talked about the importance of making fingerings not just easier, but also musical in that I think it's sort of like how violinists would talk about bowings, you know, try to arrange bowings so that it helps you shape the phrase more naturally based on the body mechanics. And then you'd also share the story about the passage in the Bartok that you had to play with the Chicago Symphony on a day's notice uh, back in the day. And so I got this impression that fingerings would play a role in memory as well. And I don't know if I'm just reading into that or not, but does fingerings have some sort of role in, in memory in your experience? Certainly for me, yeah. Because, you know, when people say, how do you remember? Uh, it's many different ways, I think, isn't it? Obviously, you remember um, the music, the actual vibrations in the air, but you also remember physically how it is, certainly on the keyboard, where in a sense that it's it's a much more mechanical thing. I mean, the, the fingers are in exactly the same place every time you play that note. I, I guess on a string instrument, it's kind of looser because there are no frets on the violin. So it, you know, it's, it's not quite so uh, much of a grid as it is on, on a keyboard instrument. But I certainly find that fingerings, it means that I'm, when I play a passage, I'm playing it again and again with exactly the same motor memory. So I'm building that in somehow as I'm doing it. And it's not, once a piece is learned, sometimes I will change a fingering, but not in a passage like the one I was describing in the, the Bartok, you know, something that's very, very complicated. I think it's good to find a fingering that really is, is solid, is tight, is musical, uh, that works. And yeah, I'm really obsessive and, and I love working on fingerings with students because so often a student will come in and a passage doesn't sound very good and it can really be fixed with a good fingering. Um, whether sometimes it's taking a note in the, in the left hand rather than the right, or it's just thinking of a different a pattern, um, thinking laterally, because sometimes what seems like a pattern on the page actually in the hand comes out in a different way and you can um, articulate something better that way or fingering for for sound, for a melodic line. Um, very often, I think students will come in and they just take the first fingerings that come to hand. But sometimes, you know, if, if we're trying to imitate, like in the Chopin Nocturnes, imitate a, a coloratura soprano, then we're thinking of where she might breathe, and therefore, where do your fingers breathe? Where would you take a breath before you you put the next hand down on onto the keyboard? So I find that really exciting, and I love someone coming and saying, "I just can't play this passage because I'm convinced every passage can be played with the right fingering." <laughs> In fact, I've been doing these um, not at Juilliard but at other colleges when I go, what I call clinics, actually. And uh, we take in, in a three hour session, rather than 
three hours one per student. I'll say maybe take 12 students or 15 students, and they each bring one problem they're having with a piece. And very often, it can, it can spoil a whole piece or a whole passage, just one little area that goes wrong every time. And can we fix this? And I love trying to get into the nuts and bolts. Uh, much like last night, I was very happy with the Mac, the Mac uh, doctor in Pennsylvania that I phoned. My computer, I couldn't get, the, I was trying to do an upgrade and then it just wouldn't start. And it kept saying, you have no ability to, to make this download. And and it took half an hour, but eventually we got the thing working again. It's very much like that, I think, in, in masterclasses. Because sometimes masterclasses can be very esoteric and, oh, think about this and, you know, open and, and this and, and all about very open things. And sometimes it's what you need is, well, you want your third finger on that C sharp and then it will be fine. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I always enjoyed watching masterclasses, but like for it to be like a problem-solving masterclass where you take a series of problems and you find solutions to it, that sounds like it would be a lot of fun, actually. And it seems like that would be the sort of thing that would work really well streaming online even as well. Yeah, I, I haven't done it online, but it, it is. And it's interesting for an audience because I think an hour with a student, well, it can be fascinating, but I think sometimes an hour is too much in a public class because there's too much obsessing over certain things, which is fine in a private lesson. But I think sometimes you just want to get through different repertoire on different ideas. And also solving a problem in one person's piece can help another person in, in their piece. Yeah, to that end, not to put you on the spot, but, and this would maybe be over my head anyway, but are there certain like guidelines or fingering principles that, because I imagine this might be something that you've found naturally interesting for many years, going back to when you were a child, maybe, but have there been some sort of crystallizing guiding principles that help you problem solve fingerings or that you use to kind of guide your choices? Uh, it's hard to be general. Well, very occasionally, if you're playing a passage that's, let's say, 16th notes in both hands, it can be quite helpful to note when you're playing the same finger in both hands, like when there are two thumbs meet. And certainly if it's fours, groups of four uh, sixteenths, and you can have them starting on the, the same finger in both hands, it can help. They're like sort of goalposts, if you like, along the way. And, and even if one gets messed up, you know by the next one you're, you're going to be together on the thumb or on the second finger or something like that. So that's one thing that comes to mind. I'm just trying to think what else. Well, it depends. Sometimes if you want something that's very strong, you might want to use more of one, two, and three fingers just because they are stronger fingers. But I'm always experimenting. I think one thing that I, I really think is quite important and that I didn't realize so much when I was a student was obviously the piano is not a legato instrument by its very design. You know, the minute a note is struck, the sound is decaying. So everything is about faking that legato. So the next note to the one before you match not to how you struck it, but to the sound of the decay so that it sounds like it's smooth. But it, of course, it's all an approximation. And I think, therefore, sometimes with fingering, people want to use legato fingerings when actually what's important is that it sounds legato, not that it is on the keyboard physically legato. Not always in every case, but there are certain cases, particularly when you're playing very, very softly, that what's important is that the hand is relaxed because sometimes with the garter fingerings, if your hand is stretched out, I don't, well, actually on the podcast, you can't see anyway, but if the hand is actually stretched, the muscles are tight and you don't have as much control 
over the muscles when they're tight. You have more control when they're relaxed. So sometimes people try to play something very, very softly, and they, they, it's not speaking because they're not relaxed. And that can sometimes be an issue of fingering too, that they're trying to do what on the page is a legato fingering, but in practice actually doesn't in the end sound as legato. And sometimes you'll find with editions that editors who've written in fingerings are not performers. And so they've not actually been on the stage working out those passages in the heat of, of the performance. And what looks like a very sensible fingering on the page just doesn't work in a concert. And I've actually found this quite a lot with, <laughs> I can name shame. <laughs> There's some very bad fingerings in the editions just because I, the poor guy who's, who's doing them just hasn't gone to that stage of working it out. That's really fascinating to me, actually. Now my head's kind of going in that direction because it sounds like you're saying that, sure, there's a fingering that might work perfectly fine when you're relaxed and calm in the practice room, but as soon as the nerves kick in on stage or there's more pressure, fingering may not work quite so well. But I think also fingering for, for expression. I mean, actually, it's interesting on, on the violin. I guess fingering has changed historically because... People do less portamenti now than they did. And so, so many fingerings that people did were for those expressive slides. And so you'd be using one finger for something or you'd be shifting in a different kind of way. There's a very interesting moment in the third Rachmaninoff concerto in the last movement where on the recording with Ormandy in Philadelphia, or I think it's 1930-something, 30 39 maybe, they play a D-flat and then they slide up to the same note. So they're obviously playing the D-flat on one string, changing to another string and sliding up to it. And you never hear, it's a very old-fashioned sound. And it's actually quite wonderful, but it sounds like a Hollywood movie or something like that. But then, a few pages later, Rachmaninoff writes the same motive for the, for the piano. And he writes in the piano, and he writes on the piano a, a, a chromatic scale going up to the note. So... That's a really interesting moment, I think, when obviously he's so expected the string players to do that slide, which they never do now unless you actually ask. We did it on my recording of that piece. We actually did do that fingering for the strings. And of course, when you first ask an orchestra, they, they're shocked because they, I mean, they think, oh, it's corny or it's in bad taste. Or, But then they really got into it. And I mean, that's a, a, and it's not quite a, an equivalent with the piano, but I think that's something where where historical performance practice in the Romantic era has changed the way that we would finger. Um, it, I can't really think exactly of an equivalent on the piano, although in earlier years, I mean, in the early, in the, in the 17th century, people were loath to use the thumb on the black notes because on a smaller keyboard, like a harpsichord or clavichord, it was just more clumsy to use the thumb on the black notes. Now that we have a bigger keyboard, it's actually very practical to use the thumb. And sometimes it can be, because the thumb is a nice fat finger. It can be a very secure way of getting hold of a note. If you, particularly, I often use it in, in, a, in a bass note. If I want to go down to a bass note on the black notes, you, you could, almost can't miss if you go for the thumb. Whereas if you use the little finger, when you have half the amount of flesh and bone, it's easy to, to fall off. I think there was a part in your book where you asked the question, well, how do I know when something's really done? Once something's really ready. And and I guess the same thoughts occurring to me with fingerings. I mean, how like do you have a sense of knowing, okay, this fingering, this is as good as it gets, at least for now, and I can move on? Or, or 
because I imagine there are times maybe where you're maybe debating between two different fingerings and there's different pros and cons of each. I mean, is it sort of a process where you at some point it's like, yeah, this is great. Let me go with this. Or, or, or is there some uncertainty maybe sometimes? Oh, sometimes uncertainty. I mean, there are some fingerings that you come across and they're so good and so secure that you just, you write them in in ink, you know, and you never want to forget them. Others, yeah, are debatable. And there are not, you know, there are certain passages which actually, it depends on different pianos sometimes. You know, if a piano has a very light action or is, let's say, is a very brilliant piano, then you might want to use less changing of hand position because generally when you change a hand position, there's a danger of a bump because you're actually coming down with the arm in a different position. But on a very heavy piano, that might actually not matter. So, or on a dull piano, you, you might you, you might not even notice that. But yeah, certain things. I'm just coming back to Chopin nocturnes at, at the moment. I'm, I'm just I'm working on them all. And there's a passage in the the big late great B major nocturne where there's a whole string of trills. And I I've written in different fingerings over the years of different ways of doing that. And that's an instance I think where it depends on the piano. I now like to use a thumb on each of the melody notes and trill with the third and, uh, and second fingers. So the, the thumb carries the melody on every note, giving me the cantabile. So I actually don't have to sing the note because the finger does it for me, because it automatically will give me a heavier sound. So I play everything as if with no nuance, and it gives me a nuance, just the finger I'm using. But on some instruments, it's too much, and you get a jangle, and the thumb is too heavy. So then I might only use the second and third fingers or a sort of combination of that because I, I don't want the heaviness of that extra flesh there. So yeah, these are all things that we're, pianists are constantly thinking about. But it's less, I think on string instruments, it's very much more about expression in a way. Well, I don't know, maybe in some very intricate passage, you would choose where, where to change strings just because it's more easy or, or whatever. I, I don't know how that... I, I played the cello to grade five very badly and then never played a string instrument again. One thing that I wanted to, to follow up on with that is I know sometimes musicians, well, violinists will feel inspired to try out a different fingering spontaneously in the moment of a performance. And sometimes it works out and it's great. And then other times you kind of work yourself into a corner and you start getting anxious because you're not sure how you're going to get yourself out of the place you put yourself in. The way you're describing different fingerings for different pianos made me wonder, do pianists or do you perhaps sometimes spontaneously decide, you know what, I'm going to try this other fingering and, and see how it goes like in a performance? Depends on the passage. I have done that. And yeah, I mean, especially if I've had a, a few fingerings in, in my history, you know, that I've worked on and thought about. And again, if a piano sometimes is very dull, you know, sometimes you'll get a, an instrument and maybe you're playing with orchestra in a big hall and it's a very dull instrument. You need to get more power. Then I may change a fingering for, for something there. If it's a very complicated, fast passage, then I'm, I probably wouldn't risk it in a concert, really. Unless it's a fingering maybe historically I've used. And, and, and so both fingerings are part of my motor memory. But I, I don't think I would try something completely new right there in a concert. Although I have in a recording. In fact, in this recording, I was doing a, a Schumann, um, the one I did a month or so ago. There was a passage that just, I, 
I got a mental block about it, actually. And this can happen in a recording session. You, for no reason, you can't even remember the fingering for a C major scale. You know, it's just like you, you, you get so white blind and, and you can't do anything. And sometimes then I've completely changed a fingering. But that would be in a recording session where it doesn't matter. I can do it a number of times. But sometimes it does make, a, make you break through something. I, I, I don't know. I guess there must be similar situations in maybe in speech therapy where someone's unable to say a word easily or having a problem with a certain consonant and, and somehow coming at it from a completely different angle can change that. And uh, I mean, the brain's weird, isn't it? It's, nine, I don't know, more than 96% of all the stuff that we do with music is up there, not here in the fingers. So sometimes it's it's trying to wrong foot yourself in order to get break through those barriers. Right. So I know the, the conversation has sort of taken an unexpected turn to fingering, so I apologize if that wasn't where you were thinking about going. There are a couple things still related to memory that I, I was curious about, sort of random maybe, but I remember reading that you, when learning a piece, would use colored pencils and mark up the score in various ways. Is that the same copy that you would then use in a performance or would you use a clean copy or are there different versions of the same thing perhaps? Uh, I'm just curious how, how your, your scores end up looking over time. No, I only ever have one score on the go at a time um, and I write everything into that. Sometimes if I come back to a piece after many years, I'll get a fresh score. And in fact, well, with the Beethoven concert, I just recorded all the Beethoven concertos last year and the new Berenreiter edition had come out before, between doing that and, and, and before. So, in fact, I did put all my old, the important markings from my old score into this new score. I mean, that's quite time-consuming, but sometimes I would do that on a flight. And, you know, often things I wrote in in the past uh, are no longer relevant. I often write in a lot of things about how to practice a passage if I find a way that works. So... My scores are often absolutely filled with different ideas, and many of them I've rejected over the years, ways I thought were a good way to, way to practice, and then I found actually it doesn't help at all. So I scratched that out, but I, I always write it down. I write everything down in the score. So, yeah, the big repertoire pieces that I've played all the time, the Rachmaninoff Concerto, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Mozart, I mean, they're, they're absolutely filled with, with markings. Mm. I know some people have no markings in their scores at all, and I... I I can't imagine doing that. I find it a way of personalizing things. It and I love the feeling of that. I it's replaced in a way the old days of the of the written diary which I used to enjoy the feeling of it being part of my life this written diary. You know that it, I usually have a, a a nice one, you know, one that was actually a, a, a nice book and I would write in it and there'd be I'd jot down poems and I'd I'd note down things that I saw and thought about and, and then the dates and, and sometimes people I met at di in different places. And so my scores now have taken, they're the only thing I write in. Now everything else is done electronically. And I haven't yet got round to iPads, right. but I think I probably will, when I'm earning some money again and I can afford it, you know, I may go to the Apple store and get one of these great big iPads and start downloading my scores because certainly it would be easy for traveling. Right. I assume that you also write into your, your own scores then that you've composed the same way that you would, you know, Beethoven concerto or something like that. Yeah, I put in fingerings in, in those as well and also ways of practicing and, and I use um, colored pencils 
Usually my colored pencil thing is either to point out contrapuntal lines or to color chords because, you know, every chord that we play on the piano, there's a hierarchy of importance in those notes. I mean, a simple major triad, obviously the top note is likely to be the melody. The third is is either major or minor, is the, is, is the identity of that chord. And then the bottom note is the bass. And so there are certain times when I want to highlight a bass line. I'm just thinking very much with Brahms. The Brahms is so much about bass lines so often. And um, so, yeah, my, I, I've got lots of bass lines highlighted in that in, in colors. But there's no significance. It's just I'll use red if there's blue elsewhere in the bar and I want to make a <laughs> distinction between them. I don't sort of have, you know, red for harmony and blue for counterpoint or things like that, just whatever's around. Right. I'm wondering if, well, it occurs to me that that if you have a long history of different sorts of markings and instructions and, and so forth in the score, I could see it going both ways. One, almost visually maybe, it being a nice reminder of what's happening or what you're trying to do or what's about to, to come. But also, on the other side, potentially maybe distracting too in that it makes you think of all sorts of things that may not necessarily be relevant to the performance in that moment. Uh, if we're talking about using music on stage, that's, I guess, why I was curious about whether you said earlier not having the music frees you up in many ways. And I think there was an anecdote in your book, too, of some advice, or maybe in the Juilliard column, about a teacher saying to a graduating student, you know, now forget everything that I've told you to kind of free them up to not feel constrained. And that's, I guess, why I was curious whether there was, you know, a difference in writing into scores when you perform it and so forth. Yeah. It could be a, a distraction if there's too much, of course, written on the page. I remember playing with Stephen Isselis once. I mean, he's a big practical joke person. And so he'd taken my scores as we were playing the Frank Sonata and he'd written little jokey... Con I didn't know this until the concert. So I'm playing along and I turn the page and it says, don't mess up this next passage or look up at the ceiling as if you're really involved here and, and all of this stuff. And it was that was very distracting, but kind of funny after the event, but not at the time. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a fun experience of a great story, at least uh, in hindsight. I guess the one last question I thought I'd maybe end with is, do you think that the cultural expectation of memory will continue to change? Or, well, I guess really the question I had was, what do you think it will take to change that cultural expectation of needing to play things from memory? Is it something that will just evolve over time? Or is maybe there's like a tipping point of enough well-known folks taking a stand or what's your sense of what it might take to, to change that? I think probably ideally it would, it, it needs to, everyone needs to make their own decision about this. You know, as I said, I think it's important as a student that you learn how to play from memory because it's a different skill. It's a different way of inhabiting the score. You know, if Judy Garland comes onto the stage to sing somewhere over the rainbow and she's got, a piece of paper with the words on in front of her. I don't think in the end it's the same experience. Now, you could say, well, playing a Mozart sonata is not playing somewhere over the rainbow. And that's true. And so in, it, there's a very crude example of how different repertoire requires a different approach. But I think there's always going to be, until we stop having public performances, there's always going to be a sense of that risk-taking 
I think, and I said in that article that the thing I wish people didn't ask was, you know, how do you remember everything? I think this is, it's only that sometimes after a concert, when you feel that something has happened very musically meaningful to you, maybe it's a very, very emotionally turbulent piece and, and, and you feel that something or, or a very transcendental piece and you come off and someone says, wow, how do you remember all that? You think, well, that's really the least thing that's important about what I've done because, you know, some people remember, some people don't. And I think that's the only thing that really bothers me when that's what people, when it becomes like a circus act. And I think when Judy Garland sings that song, it's not, she's not, it's not a circus act. She's not saying, hey, look how clever I am. I, I know this song from memory. She's singing it from memory because it's pouring out of her, you know, from some very deep level. And maybe she'll forget the words. Actually, she spoke. There's that very famous Carnegie Hall concert where she kind of goes to pieces, but it's really still wonderful because you see the fragility of this person and, and the vulnerability of her. And in fact, in a sense, her falling apart makes you feel, well, my falling apart maybe is not so bad after all. You know, you kind of, you, you join with her. And that's one of the reasons it was so captivating. But she speaks uh, in one of her little um, interludes between about, you know, I can't remember the words to this song. And she actually does prop up the song. I think it's an old coward uh, song that, that she sings. But I don't know. I just, what I wouldn't like is for students to work less hard because they can sight read from the iPad. And so they come into a lesson and with a, a slow movement of a Haydn sonata, you know, anyone can sight read that. So they never learn it really thoroughly. And I think that's the danger of playing for music. So I think there has to be this period when you suffer and you have to learn and you have to memorize and it's horrible and all of the rest. But I think once you have a career going and also with, with repertoire, I mean, the people who have incredible memories, incredible repertoire, sometimes play from scores. I've seen Yuja Wang, um, you know, who's got this incredible repertoire. She plays more than anyone else I know, but with Bartok second, there was the iPad, and I don't think anyone really cares. No one's saying, oh, well, you you know, you don't know this piece. So, But I think to get to that stage, if you're a freshman, you know, coming in and you say, well, I never memorize anything, I, I think there's, there is an apprentice period when you have to go through the, that difficulty, actually. I think the key is not to be too worried about it, to be flexible a little bit, to feel that if someone has a memory lapse, that's not the most important thing in the world. And they should certainly feel that when they're doing it. I've listened to some auditions and I don't think I would reject anyone in an audition just because they had a memory lapse. If they played wonderfully, I, it wouldn't bother me particularly. I mean, if they're having memory lapses every five seconds, then that's, there's an issue there. But if someone takes a terrible turn and goes all over the place and stops and starts again and plays absolutely wonderfully, I would take them in my studio and I would pass them in the competition. And I think this is perhaps, and I this is I would really like this to be something for the future that we don't have a, a fetish about memory in the way that perhaps we did. Um, I'm going to be on, on the jury of the Cliburn next year. Uh, maybe I, I shouldn't be saying this, but I would not turn anyone down for that reason alone. That sounds like a, a great place to wrap up. It sounds like the answer is not a clear black and white one, but it depends on the situation, on where they are in the development and the piece perhaps even, and a variety of factors that lead an artist to be able to make a choice about what's right for them at that moment. 
But I, I think risk taking, though, is part of performance. I can completely understand why someone just doesn't want to go out and play in public. And there's no good or bad about that. Some people love being on stage and they only feel alive when they're in front of an audience. Other people hate it. And actually, other great artists hate it. You know, there are some people who still play wonderful concerts, but, you know, apparently backstage, I mean, they're literally feeling like they're going to throw up because they're so nervous. And and there, there are both t- types of people who, uh, both of which have long careers. But I think if you are on stage, there's always, there is going to be an element of risk. And memory is part of that risk. And so I think you're never going to feel 100% comfortable like you are when you're having a really nice breakfast or holiday sometime when you're on stage in front of an audience. And that's part of the deal. It's just what it's about. Maybe a brain surgeon always feels that risk too. But you just, you have to go with it and, um, and learn how to work, work around it, I suppose. For a full transcript of this episode, plus links to random interesting things that came up in conversation, as well as resources like practice hacks and the audition cheat sheet, please visit bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.